years ago, my wife and I sort of agreed, made a pact that we would just have three kids. We, we had three kids. We we're like, hey, I think, I think we're kind of done. We want a family of five and, and that's it until about a year and a half ago. Uh, about a year and a half ago, we decided to make an addition to our family. We decided to add a child to our family, but this one was a little bit different. You see, I had to fly to Oklahoma and get this child. His name is Lincoln. He's a golden retriever. And uh, Lincoln and I did bond, like father and son. Like I drove him back to Arizona for 16 hours, people. Uh, it was a very bonding time. And uh, the reality is my, my kids were so excited to have a dog. And one of the reasons they were so excited to have a dog was to take that dog as a family to a dog park. It was like a play date for our, our dog. And we got to be there and observe that. But we got really scared and nervous about this possibility and didn't even take advantage of this possibility because we had a dog trainer when Lincoln was a puppy. And I would talk to him like, we're so excited. One of the reasons I'm training him is so we can take him to the dog park. My kids are so excited. And he looked at me one day, I kid you not, he said this. He said, Tim, would you take one of your kids to a prison for a play date? Because that's what a dog park is for a dog. And I was like, what? I'm like, I think that's a little extreme. He's like, no, no, no. Do you know all kinds of diseases or dog parks? This scares some of y'all from going to the dog park. And all kinds of dogs, they, they, haven't been, like, they haven't been trained like your dog, and they can do things. Like, that's kind of crazy to take them to a dog park. So we didn't take Lincoln for a dog park. He's almost two years old. We didn't take him to a dog park till a couple weeks ago. But we broke through the fear and the trauma of that dog trainer that he gave us. <laughs> and we finally took Lincoln to a dog park as a family, and it was amazing. Like, it was all the things you can think of. I mean, look at that guy. It was that gentle giant, like, going around all these other dogs. Like, picture there were pugs there. There were basset hounds, and he was just frolicking, playing with all these dogs. It was amazing. But I did notice what the dog trainer had talked about, that, that really a dog park is, is about all these dogs sizing each other up. And specifically, you can tell my dog is big. He's about 100 pounds. And so all these little dogs, you know, they got some insecurities. They got a lot of stuff going on. All these little dogs, like they would immediately come up to Lincoln, not other dogs. They would come up to Lincoln, the biggest one out there, and they would buck up to him and just see what Lincoln would do. And he would just lay down, right? And then, but all these dogs, they were just sizing each other up. And you started to realize a dog park, here's what a dog park is. It's a struggle for power. That's what it is. Everybody's trying to see, hey, who has the power and what are you going to do with that power? And as I was thinking about it, that's true in all of life, right? If you've ever been a part of little league sports, amen, parents, that's true. As soon as you're involved in the sport, like you're sizing people up as parents, like what camp did your, go, did your kid go to? What kind of skills does your kid have? And like, I'm gonna make sure my kid gets to play, but I'm gonna act really nice to the other parents and seem not crazy at times, right? In Little League, you see that. With your lawn in your neighborhood, you see that, right? You're like, check out my lawn. I have the power, right? Oh, whose lawn is that? Oh my gosh. Pray for them, right? In politics, we want to know who has the power, right? With all of life, we think about who has the power and what are they going to do with it? How can I get more of it? And here's the reality in 2022 that I think we can all acknowledge is we don't handle power well. We don't handle power well. But the reality is 
all of us have power at some level. Some of you, as you think about power, you're thinking about a politician. You're thinking about your boss. You're thinking about somebody else out there. Here's the reality. In this room, you all have power at some level. The question is not, do you have power or do you not? The question is, what are you going to do with your power? Are you gonna use it to just benefit yourself or are you gonna use it to edify others? Are you gonna use it to bring glory to God or are you gonna use it to bring more glory to yourself? What are you gonna do with your power? So today we're gonna look at this idea of power and how to navigate power in the life of David. See, last week we started this brand new series, Broken People, Big God. And we're looking at these characters in the Bible. Some of them are well-known, like David and like Noah last week. Some of them are lesser known, like one we're gonna look at next week. But, but here's the reality for all of them is they're ultimately broken people, the heroes of the faith. You're gonna see it with David, broken people used by a big God. And we wanna try to learn from their lives about our lives and how God uses us. And so today we're gonna to look at this idea of power. We're gonna do so from 1 Samuel chapter 24. So grab a Bible uh, with me, head to 1 Samuel chapter 24. And if you take notes, here's a big picture of where we are headed. We're gonna look at the power of power the power of mercy, and the power of trust. 1 Samuel 24, it says this. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. That is what you're probably thinking about. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here's the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. So David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a, a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. And so David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. So let's pull back just a little bit because we're parachuting in here. Some of you know elements of David's story. Maybe some of you don't, but, but you've probably heard about a slingshot and a giant. You've probably heard like David was a king, but he was kind of a Renaissance man. Like he also played a harp and wrote poetry, right? And that's a little snapshot of David's life. But what's unique about David's life in all of scripture is he's the second most referenced character in all of scripture next to Jesus, that we get uniquely, really, unlike a lot of other characters in Scripture, we get David from kid all the way to king. We get him from this little shepherd boy, son of Jesse, the eighth son of Jesse, who's small, who's, who's not even in the lineup when the prophet Samuel is anointing the next king of Israel. That's David. We see him as a little shepherd boy, but we do. We see him come out with a slingshot and kill the giant that King Saul nor anyone else could take care of. We see little David 
grow into that kind of warrior. And then we see David go on to become king, and we see his great feats. We're going to look at one of them today, just of his character. But we also see David as this broken man who commits the double whammy. He's an adulterer, and he's a murderer. And yet he's a man after God's own heart. So we have this huge story of David. And as you see things that are often repeated in Scripture, like the life of David and in-depth accounts of David's life, that's God trying to tell us he wants to teach us something, something through the life of David. But I think what we have to be careful as we look at the life of David and, and really any character in all of Scripture, but I think in particular the life of David, is we have to be careful that we don't make it a fairy tale. See, some of you, you grew up in, a, in church, and one of the first flannel graphs you ever saw was the slingshot and the giant. And some of you can picture right now, like, movies you've seen depicting that, and it seems a little bit like a fairy tale, but we need to know God gives us these stories as historical narrative that David was an actual man, that this really happened, and he's trying to teach us through real life. And we see that as we even just look at this scene and we get this place of Engedi, the wilderness of Engedi. Now, when you see wilderness in scripture, don't think like woods and pine trees. You need to be thinking about the desert in Phoenix. That's what they meant by wilderness. In fact, if you've been to a place like Havasupai Falls, this is kind of like what Engedi is. I think we have it on the screen. Engedi. That's the nation of Israel. You see Jerusalem, you see Jericho, and Gedi was on the west side of the Dead Sea, and it was a place of canyons and caves, so it was good for hiding out and protection, but it also had places of oasis that were good for vegetation and provision for David's men. So David is on the run from King Saul, and this is where they go. They go to a, a real place. You can go there today of Engedi. And David's on the run from King Saul because this is real life. And people are dealing with real power dynamics. And you have Saul who is king, but really only by position. Like Saul in this moment, his power, it's in his position, but David has the power of the people. See, something flipped when David killed Goliath. Like a hype train started and, and people started to no longer look at Saul as the one with all the power. They started to look at David. In fact, they wrote songs about David. There were songs that little kids would know and, and parents would know of, hey, Saul killed thousands. David killed tens of thousands. Like it was at the top of the charts in that day. Everybody in the community would have known that song. And so you gotta think, this is real life, a real king, Saul, and he sees that from David, and he feels threatened in his power. And so he starts trying to, to kill David, and he starts going out on the run to kill David. And it doesn't matter that he has a nation to rule. It doesn't matter that, as this text mentions, he's battling another army called the Philistines. He wants to get David. He wants to take out David. And what you see in Saul is how power can affect someone. What you see is the power of power. You see it can make somebody crazy. You see, I don't know if you caught that detail, but Saul comes at David with 3,000 men. Now, some of you think, well, Tim, this was like ancient warfare and ancient culture. Isn't that pretty common for them to just load up and go hunt somebody in a cave? Yeah, yeah maybe, except David had 600 men. So if you do the math, King Saul is outnumbering David five to one. 
He's got other enemies to focus on, but he says, no, no, this is my focus. We're going to go all the way out into the caves of Engedity, and we're going to find David, and we're going to take him out. You see the, the power of power. You see what it does to people when they feel their powers threatened. You see what it does to Saul. He, he's off in a cave instead of sitting on a throne because of the threat to his power. And see, the reality today is I think it would be easy for us to look at Saul and be like, how crazy is that? Or, or to look at people sometimes in, in our world, like politicians or your boss, and just like, Man, all they want is power, and it makes them crazy. How could they ever do that? And yet never think about how, how you do some crazy stuff to guard your power. Parents, I mean, it's Father's Day, so we just got to go here. Like, how many times, like, do your kids disobey? Like, they, they drop something on the floor that they shouldn't have. They don't put their towel back up. They didn't do their chores or whatever. And, and the reality is, if you were to look back and, and get all the emotion out and just look back, like, 10 years from now, you probably wouldn't even remember that they did that. But in the moment, that is like the biggest threat to your power known to man. Like, how dare you drop that on the floor? How, you didn't make your bed? Do you respect me as your father? What are we doing here? Anybody, like dads, can you give me an amen today? Your, your kid comes around, he's like, hey, I'm like, hey, my son, Ashwin, hey, Ashwin. No response. <laughs> Ashwin finally comes in, what? I'm like, how about we go ahead and try that again? <laughs> yes, father. You, you, you know what I'm feeling in that moment? It's not just discipline one-on-one. I'm feeling like, you don't understand my power. You better check yourself before you wreck yourself, son. It's a threat to my power. Makes me crazy. Makes me yell at my kids when I shouldn't. When, when I look back and be like, I don't even remember that happening, but like in the moment, it was just like, makes you crazy. Like, we do that in parenting. We do that in politics. Yeah, I'm gonna go there. Why, why is it, of all the things in life that could divide us, I mean, there's, there's a lot of things, right? There's, there's literally like diseases that could literally divide us. There's, there's other things that could divide us. And yet what seems to divide us most, is particularly in our day, is politics. Like it will, I'll go to a pastor's lunch or a pastor's conference, and they'll talk about seasons of ministry, and not just in like from kids ministry to youth ministry to young adults to older adults to multi-generational discipleship. That's not typically what they talk about and equip us as pastors around. Not in 2022. Not after the last election. What they equip us around is these seasons of every four years and elections of politicians. How are you going to lead your people in the midst of that? Because they're going to tear one another apart. They're going to, because of politics, they're going to say things to one another like ninja warriors on a keyboard that they would never say to somebody else's face, but they will de destroy a person, not debate a topic over politics. Why? The threat to power. Oh, you, you're going to take away my side of the aisle? Oh, like the elephant or the donkey? Are you trying to reign? What's that going to do to my rights? What's that gonna do to my, you're trying to mess with me. You're trying to mess with the foundation of our country. And listen, you're like, well, is he talking about Democrats or Republicans? I'm talking about both of y'all. 
Why does it divide us so much? It's a threat to power. Power will make anybody crazy, not just Saul, not just your boss, and not just your dad. It will make you crazy. And we see that in all kinds of ways in our lives. So as we read this, as we see Saul get crazy, get 3,000 men to go fight 600 men in a cave, we need to think about not just Saul, we need to think about us. How do you deal with power, especially when it's threatened? What does that cause you to do to other people who are created in the image of God? who you're called to love, how do you respond when your power is threatened? We see how Saul responds, but we also see the opposite of that, don't we, with the way David responds. Like David has an opportunity to seize power right here too. Did you see it? Saul, this guy who, David's the anointed coming king. Like David should be being treated like a king. Where's David? In a cave, on the run. I don't know if you read, like, his wife, did you see his wife, like, in here, like, they were hanging out on a date? No. David's been separated from his wife. David's been separated at this moment from his friend, Jonathan. So his wife is taken away from him. His honor is taken away from him. His friendships are taken away from him. He doesn't deserve that. He's God's anointed coming king. And here you have Saul. I mean, just picture it with me. David with all his men in the innermost parts of this cave and they hear a rustle. They hear somebody enter the cave. Who's it gonna be? Oh, it's Saul. Oh, is he coming in to kill us with a sword like raging? No, no, no. He's dropping his pants. That's what the phrase means in the Hebrew. Literally, his pants are around his ankles. That's what relief himself means. And he's peeing, right? And all his men are like, hey, this is the day the Lord has made. I mean, David, are you kidding me right now? Like, go kill this guy. Like, take him out. This is your time. Do it. And David feels that tug of power a little bit. He takes the sword. He chops off the end of Saul's robe. But then it said his his heart struck him. And he he calls Saul the Lord's anointed. I can't do this to the Lord's anointed. You see, David starts to think about not just his power, not just Saul's power, but God Almighty's power. And he starts to say, hey, yeah, I could be expedient about this. I could be expedient. I could take this guy out, but I want to be obedient instead. David knew God's will, Like Samuel had proclaimed it, even Jonathan, a couple chapters before, Saul's own son says, yeah, this is what's gonna happen. I'm not gonna become king after Saul. You are David. David knew the will of God, but he also knew the way of God. And he didn't wanna get to the the will of God too quickly if it wasn't gonna be God's way. And so he resists that temptation of power. He's patient in the midst of an opportunity to seize power. So so how do you navigate? You all have power. How do you navigate it? Like, do you just take what's mine? I'm gonna get mine. Everybody else, they're in the way, they're in the way. Does it make you crazy? Are you patient? Are you operating under God's power in your life? That's the first thing. Here's the second thing we see. We see the power of mercy. Look at verse eight with me. This scene continues says this, afterward, David also arose. He went out of the cave and called after Saul. This is incredible. He says, my Lord, the king. 
And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today in my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt me, hunt my life to take it. This, this is insane if you think about the picture we're, we're seeing here. Right, you got David and all his men the reason they're hiding in a cave is because they don't want Saul to find him and them, right? And their cover hasn't been blown until now. And did you see David? He arises, runs out of the cave. Wait a second, Saul, come back. I have something to tell you. I got a speech to give you. Hey, why are you trying to kill me, bro? I mean, I got to think his men were in the innermost parts of the caves of like, this is kind of like not the plan. This is not the agenda of this battle. Like in that moment, they could all be thinking, hey, there's 3,000 men out there still. Now we're gonna die. And at the risk of his own life, at the risk of his men's life, David leads the way, not with power, but with mercy. He says, hey, you see this little corner of your robe, Saul? Like, I could have had you. I could have killed you, but I spared you. He goes over the top. Did you notice it? He calls him Lord, like lowercase Lord, but he bows down before him, paying homage. The same guy who is the reason he's in a cave, the same guy who is the reason he's away from his wife and his best friend, the same guy who instead of lifting him up as the future king and honoring him and telling all the people to do so, is out to kill him. And yet David responds not with vengeance, in his power, but with mercy. It's amazing, right? It's an opportunity for us to look at that and see how do we, you all have power, how do you extend mercy in the midst of your power and not take yours and not take vengeance with your power? That's powerful when that happens. You see this again with parenting, I've seen this in myself as a father. Listen, dads, here's the best tip I can give you as a father. It's not an incredible chore chart. <laughs> it's not even just like, hey, have devotional times with your kids while, while you should have that. It's not that you should just pray with your kids. It's not even that, like I've told you guys before as dads, hey, here's something I do with my kids every night before they go to bed. I tell them I love them. I tell them I like them because you can love them and not like them. Come on. And I tell them I'm proud of them. I could give you all those tips. Listen, take those with you. But here's the biggest tip I can give you as a parent. Repent to your kids. Right, show mercy to your kids. Why? What's the biggest thing you want for your kids? Repentance. Do you want your kids to go to heaven when they die? Do you want your kids before a holy God as sweet but sinful human beings, do you want them to be reconciled before a holy God? Do you want them to experience the grace and love and mercy of God on their life? 
Do you want them to grow up one day and marry somebody else who has encountered and received the love of God? Is that what you want for your kids? I think all of us should say amen. That's the, I want that more than the scholarship. And I love scholarships and I want praise Jesus and his name, bring the scholarship. I want, I want my kids to like have success. I want them to take care of me and let me live with them when I'm old. I want all those things too. But the biggest thing I want for my kids is them for, for, to know Jesus Christ, amen? To be saved from hell. That's what I want for my kids. Here's what unlocks all of that. Repentance. So if that's what we want for our kids, what's the biggest thing we can show and put on display for our kids? Repentance. That they can say one day, hey, I'm gonna repent to God the Father for my sin because I've seen my Father repent to us. I know some of you, maybe you don't, you're like, Tim, you're already, like, you talked about politics. Now you're threatening my power as a parent. Like, I do not like it here. I had to repent. I'm not saying I'm sorry to my kids. Do you want your kids to say they're sorry before their father? Then maybe you should think about, hey, when we mess up, yeah, discipline, chore chart, do all the things. But when we mess up, extend mercy. Extend mercy to your kids. When they mess up, extend mercy. Talk about, teach, model repentance because that's what you want for them. That is powerful, amen? That will change a kid's life. That will change. Some of you, you're like, my dad never did that. Yeah, you can change the trajectory of your family lineage. You can have a legacy of repentance, of mercy, It doesn't matter if your dad didn't do that. You can change it with yourself. You can change it with their kids. And on and on you go. You can change not just families, but societies. How? The power of mercy. That's what we see in this moment. Are you enacting that? Are, Are you just keeping that power hidden? Because that is powerful. Are you unleashing that in your relationships, in your parenting? Imagine just, I just want you to dream with me for one second. We're gonna move on to the next point. What if you treated all people like this, not just your kids? What if you treated people not as threats to power, but as people who need the mercy of God? What if politics was like that? (laughs) Oh, Jesus, I can't imagine. What if your relationships and friendships, what if your coworkers, and it wasn't all just about getting ahead and and kicking other people while you climb up the ladder. What if you treated people with mercy? That's powerful. And that would unify churches, that would unify our nation like you would never believe. What if the church led the way in that? That's what we get this little picture of to see in our lives. Here's the last thing. The power of trust. Look at verse 12. We'll finish out the chapter. Verse 12, it says, May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, Out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? Uh, David's describing himself. Like, Saul, you got 3,000 men. I got 600. This is like bringing a shotgun to kill a cockroach. David's making that point. 
Verse 15, may the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul says, is this your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He's crying. Verse 17, he says to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, Saul saying, hey, this is the way it typically works. Will he let him go away safe? So, so may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I now know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. You see the power of trust. Twice, David says, may the Lord judge. May the Lord judge. He says, the Lord will bring vengeance. He says, I don't have to lift a finger against you. God's gonna take care of this. Again, just see the radical trust in this moment. Like there's Saul, but there's also 3,000 men behind Saul. And Saul is saying, hey, I'm not gonna try to kill you. I mean, I don't know, maybe he put away his sword. He's trusting God. He's not just saying it, he's showing it. He's out there before Saul. Saul and his men, they could have taken him out, but he trusts God. And as I saw this, I, I kind of know the story of David, know the trajectory. Seven chapters later, Saul does actually die. But David's nowhere to be found. He dies at the hand of the Philistines. And what David is proclaiming in this moment does go on to happen. God takes care of this. And as I thought about that, I thought just, okay, but David's in a cave. He's not with his wife. His friend has been taken away from him. He's gotta be scared out of his mind just day to day. He's about to go back up to the stronghold. Most likely that was another cliff, another place to hide. God, why wouldn't you just tell David right then? Like supernaturally, yes, David, I will avenge you. And it's gonna be seven chapters later and the Philistines are gonna take care of it. Just go back, take a nap, calm down. Why didn't God tell him that? Because he's trying to teach David to trust him. As he goes off to the next cliff, as they go continue to hide, as he stands out before King Saul, not knowing what's gonna happen, all of that is refining David. It's molding David. It's teaching David how to trust God. It's teaching all of David's men. Can you imagine that? I mean, David could have just killed Saul in that moment, like Braveheart moment, and everybody could have lifted David on their shoulders and exalted David. But David... He's exalting God in this moment. He's setting a tone, a temperature, a trajectory of here's how I'm going to roll as king. I'm gonna honor God. He is the powerful one, not me. All of this happens as David trusts God, the power of trust. So listen, here's the way we could end this thing is we could say, okay, so everybody has power, some level of power in your life. What do we do with that power? Be like David with your power. Extend mercy to other people. Extend trust to God with your power. Be like 
David, let's pray and go home. No, right? Some of you go on to read the story of David. You know about it. You're like, doesn't he commit adultery and murder like the double whammy? I think be, be like David breaks down fast. Listen, it breaks down faster than you know. Read the next chapter. Like, go home and read the next chapter. You're going to read about a guy named Nabal. A guy named Nabal who David wants Nabal to invite him and all of his men over to his house for a feast for dinner. And Nabal says no. And do you know what David does? He loads up his army, all their swords, to go kill Nabal because he didn't say yes to dinner. Be like David. Before you ever get to adulterer or murderer, you get crazy David who wants to kill somebody because they won't invite him for dinner. Be like David, merciful, trusting with your power. Breaks down real fast. That's not the lesson of the story. The lesson of the story is be rescued by the power of Jesus Christ. You see, this, this scene that we see here, it foreshadows another scene where the son of David, Jesus Christ, he's in a, another wilderness and he's being tempted with power, not by Saul, but by Satan himself. And Satan's saying to Jesus, hey, all the power is yours. You're already the anointed king. Just take it. You're hungry. Make that stone into bread. Just, just take the power now. You're going to have to suffer a lot. Take the power now. No need to suffer. And Jesus, not just one time in one scene, Jesus at every scene with every temptation, he resists that temptation. And in his power, he doesn't seize the power. Philippians chapter 2 says he gives the power away all the way up on a cross, and he's mocked, and he's crucified, and he's humiliated. And in his power, he shows mercy to other people, and he shows trust in his Father. So that's the story, amen? You, you get to know him. You get to know his kind of power. You extend that kind of power to other people, but you first encounter that kind of power in Jesus Christ. Don't be like David. Be rescued by Jesus Christ. That's how we unleash this kind of power in the world. That's how the church of Jesus Christ, that's how Phoenix Bible Church begins to be a light in the darkness with power. It's people who extend the same mercy we have received in Jesus. It's people who extend the same trust we've seen modeled perfectly by Jesus. We entrust God the Father with our power as well. And God uses it to bless other people and to unite people under his power. Amen? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I thank you for your power. God, your power that's perfected in Jesus Christ. God, I pray that, that all of us today, that we would know that, God, we have some level of power. We wouldn't be looking outside these walls right now. We would be looking inside our own hearts. How do we deal with power? How do we navigate it? And God, some of us, if we're honest right now, we just need to confess before you that we haven't dealt with it well, that we want power to bless ourselves, not to edify other people. God, that we treat pe people as threats, not people to love and extend mercy to. And God, I just pray that right now, we would confess that before you. 
that you would change that about us, that we could know your kind of power, the power that extends mercy, that loves people, and see how powerful that is in and through the life of a believer, in and through the life of your church. And God, I just, I pray that we would see your power on display, but, but show that kind of power in our world who desperately needs to see it, who maybe don't have dads who showed that kind of power in a loving way. God, that we would be that kind of power in our culture, that Phoenix Bible Church would be just that. We can't do that without you. We can't do that without your power. So I pray that you would grant, us, grant it to us now by your mercy and grace. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. 